Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharat Vartha Weekly. I am Roshan Karyapa and have with me Nirav Kanodra to run you through the news and events of the week that was. Well, last week we complained that there wasn't much to cover, much to talk about. And this week has kind of more than made up for it. We'll talk about the India-Canada diplomatic crisis, uh, the passing of the historic women's reservation bill and Gujarat's introduction of a new bill to end student elected bodies and finally JP Morgan including Indian government bonds in the emerging market debt index. Uh, all of this and more on this Bharatvarta Weekly. If you're new to the channel, uh, do follow or subscribe to us uh, for content on politics, policy and culture. Uh, and if you are a returning visitor, uh, consider rating or reviewing us so that more people can discover our content. Well, let's talk about what's happening with India and Canada. Earlier this week, diplomatic ties between India and Canada took a nosedive after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a public allegation against India. He claimed that there was, to quote, credible evidence that India was involved in the killing of a Khalistani extremist on Canadian soil. Canada then expelled Indian diplomats to which India responded in kind and expelled Canadian diplomats in Delhi. The Indian Ministry of External Affairs rejected the allegations, calling them absurd and motivated. India later issued a travel advisory for Indians in or traveling to Canada, calling the country a safe haven for radical extremists and designated terrorists. Well, uh, Neera, we've covered this whole brewing tension uh, between India and Canada uh, on the Khalistan issue for the last three or four months uh, on the weekly. Uh, and uh, it has come to the brim at this point of time. Uh, what do you make of it? Okay, so one is uh, Trudeau. Uh, he's the leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, he has a coalition ally, Jagmeet Singh. And uh, the Sikhs typically vote left of centre. So that is, like, politically, that's a constituency which kind of leans towards him. Uh, second thing is, Canada has had a lot of Sikh immigrants, right from the 1960s. Uh, a lot of them initially went as farm workers and truck drivers, but they've, they've had like good social mobility and they've risen up the ranks. You have members of the parliament. In the 80s, at the peak of the Khalistani movement, a lot of Khalistani uh, people had uh, escaped India and gone migrated to Canada. So you have like more people with Khalistani separatist tendencies in Canada uh, than you have in India, actually. And then... Lastly, I want to say is that the countries don't realize it. Like you had in uh, in the 80s, you had one plane bombing, Kanishka bombing, where a lot of Canadian citizens died as well. And uh, so that was like uh, something which should have like made them realize a lot more seriousness about this whole issue. Yeah, so that particular incident, right? I mean, I was just looking into it. 325 people on board died. Yeah. Uh, and it was from Montreal to London. Uh, a sizable number of uh, Canadians as well. And guess yes. how many people actually went to jail or whatever, right? Zero. So I think there's one. No, so, oh, okay. So one was kind of accused. Yeah. One, one was so accused. I don't think away, anything yeah. happened uh, after that. So I think, see, that that is also like uh, one thing which should tell them the seriousness of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Harmeet Singh Nijal was uh, on India's like wanted list since 2018. And uh, that was something which was communicated and given to the Canadian government by Captain Amrinder Singh was then the Punjab CM. So this is a known age-old issue. Uh, I have no idea or can't say how he died. Maybe it's rival gangs or whoever is involved, uh, etc. But it's an unfortunate thing. Ideally, he should have been extradited and put in prison in India for whatever crimes that he's committed. And then second thing is this Khalistani separatist movement 
has gone up a little bit notch after the farmers agitation against the farm laws. And that time all these separatist elements again have been trying to ferment trouble. And India is trying to get Canada's help to get this. Uh, unfortunately, this is probably the reason why India sidelined Justin Trudeau at the G20. So he was also shown in negative light by the Canadian media. So he's trying to act tough and he's uh, expelled India's uh, diplomat and also uh, I think in public uh, let out name of a raw agent. Once that has happened, India retaliated back by sending back Canadian diplomats. And now India has said that they will not give any visas to Canadian citizens visiting India, though consular services are open for Indian citizens. Canada has a lot of Indian students, a lot of Indian who have gone there to work, a lot of people who have applied for Canadian PR. So uh, also we've stopped talk, uh, discussions on the free trade agreement. So I think all of these things, uh, it's kind of a sad thing. I think the root of the issue is uh, there are quite a few Khalistani separatists and a lot of them are wanted criminals. So some of them are terrorists and criminals. So I think if the authorities could cooperate and actually help India extradite some of these people, that would have been an ideal scenario. But that is unfortunately not happening. Also, it seems uh, given that the stakes have been raised so much, it is unlikely that we see ties resume. So in 2024, India has its election and in 2025, Canada has its election. So maybe uh, if the same two parties come back in power, uh, maybe we might not see thawing of the relations for a while. Canada also, uh, it's part of the Five Eyes Network, which is uh, USA, Canada, uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand, who share intelligence. And they tried to get the other allies to come and speak against India. But I think they have all refrained. But see, this is, India has to keep its national interest and its territorial integrity on top. And though the US did say, uh, Anthony Blinken did say about extrajudicial killings, killing on foreign soil is not not an appropriate thing to do. That completely slams of hypocrisy. Uh, We know what happened to Osama bin Laden or uh, Soleimani of Iran. So let's leave that part out. And anyways, I personally am a person of peace. So I don't really think that all these things are appropriate. But either ways, I think this situation is a kind of a small thing which has been blown out of proportion and the consequences can be larger. I think what I feel bad for is a lot of Indian citizens. Hopefully there are no like real uh, hate crimes or something against Indians or Hindu temples in Canada. Also, there might be a rift between uh, Indian origin people who are already Canadian citizens versus like recent immigrants from India. And, you know, those kind of... uh, Sometimes these kind of rivalries or uh, things can be actually create a whole negative experience. And uh, finally, like had India been able to get through an FTA with Canada, Canada has the NAFTA agreement with the US. So, and there's a lot of people to people exchange. So that would have helped as well. Anyways, I think this will take some while to uh, calm down. But I think now look at it from one perspective. That one is India is standing up tough, which is a good thing. It is correct. Maybe this is actually burnishing uh, or strengthening Modi's uh, domestic image. So probably helps him. Or maybe by the time next year election rolls out, most people would have forgotten about this anyways. And even to the international community, uh, India is now being taken a little more seriously. Uh, Now, can you manage the consequences of this fallout? We'll see. Hopefully, see, we have... Dr. Jai Shankar, 
he's a expert diplomat all of india's foreign services etc very competent smart people not to say the canadians aren't and uh, i think something would be resolved uh, there are a lot of common interests i think this is a thorn in this relationship which is uh, harboring some in the wider sikh community in india probably it's a lot less within canada as well like there are a few fringe elements so mentally living in 1980s and it is these fringe elements which is causing the trouble i'm sure like a lot of canadian indians don't care either about khalistan or about india the sikh community in canada so i think farm laws or a separate khalistan state etc is a non issue and should be treated as such let's see i think only time will tell uh, how this does get resolved but i don't see a quick resolution anytime soon yeah no i think first thing you know we must definitely separate Sikhs from Khalistanis. I mean, I was listening to the Economist and the BBC podcasts on this issue, uh, and they seem to conveniently use both inter interchangeably, right? Now, I don't know if that's deliberate or if that's just a misunderstanding. And uh, they call uh, Nijar, who has been, you know, photographed with guns and whatnot, uh, and who has uh, said a lot of violent things. They call him an activist, right? As a person who uh, was invested in service and whatnot, right? um so so i think that sort of uh, thing has to change for sure right i mean we have documented ed- evidence of pakistan and isi sort of cultivating these folks fomenting issues troubles and what not so that's the first thing right i think and if you look at the sikh community in india i think extremely patriotic uh, and productive people uh, right we've had a sikh president a prime minister uh, people in uh, you know uh, diplomatic positions and so on and so forth right uh, and i think the vast majority of sikhs uh, don't really want all of this nonsense of a khalistan or whatever right i mean they're doing very well here uh, even though you know punjab has had its uh, share of troubles over the last few years right i think this demand for khalistan is something external to india it's uh, it's all of these folks in canada or britain vacillating against this and i doubt any of these folks will give up their passports to come back to uh, punjab or khalistan whenever that uh, you know uh, fiction uh, fiction happens right or or doesn't happen likely right so so uh, i think that's the first thing the second thing is uh, I, you know i mean uh, uh, again these bbc and economist podcasts uh, you know these commentators were talking about it as though it's an affront on the west uh, right I, I, you know um, now again you know we don't know what has happened uh, whether india had any role at all to uh, play in these assassinations and, and you know these guys have been dropping like flies uh, after that right now again you know i mean you can call it like some kind of 3d chess that india is doing with all of its raw agencies and what not or i mean it could just be base uh, gang violence or it could be you know some something with the isi etc we don't know right i mean the jury is still out on that uh, i feel but but uh, even if you observe what uh, you know secretary of state blinken said i think it was a very carefully worded statement he never accused india of anything and he said we would wait for the investigation to be concluded which means that you know that the evidence is not conclusive as such uh, right and that itself i think uh, uh, shows the heft and the uh, you know position of india uh, at this point of time that you know, us does not want to outrightly condemn india uh, right so that uh, is something to watch out for something to observe right uh, i was watching this uh, interview of uh, uh, i think rajdeep sardesai was interviewing kc singh who's a former diplomat and daniel boardman who is a canadian journalist uh, and it 
seemed like as though you know i mean it, it, it was uh, these guys were playing different roles right i mean they were doing the opposite kesey singh it, it just surprised me right i mean he found like 50 ways to sort of justify why this is happening without explicitly condemning khalistanis right saying that the government has sort of uh, had a role to play in this increasing tensions over the last year and so on and so forth whereas i mean if you look at daniel bodman he was absolutely clear right that uh, this nijar character first of all it's a doubt whether he's a legit citizen itself right because his uh, citizenship was rejected first like he tried to illegally migrate then he tried to marry his sponsor and that too was rejected and, and so after all of these years he's still there so we don't really know if he's a legit citizen in the first place right uh, then clearly from everything that he has been doing all his activities and such i mean it's it's clear that he's a violent guy right and he condemned that outrightly and also talked about this incident in canada a few months or perhaps last year where it was proven that the chinese were interfering in canadian politics uh, and had spies uh, by the dozen uh, but justin trudeau never really talked about that never really you know cared too much about it uh, but then i mean it's in stark contrast to what he is doing right now which is you know make a serious allegation on some half baked uh, investigation right so uh, so that was interesting to see both of these folks uh, talk about uh, this uh, right and i think my favorite incident from all of this was you know a report that came out that said the to quote the indian intelligence chief told the cia director that the only reason that they didn't take action against uh, gs pannu who is a dual citizen of us and canada uh, for openly calling for assassination of indian diplomats was because he could actually be a cia agent i think that was uh, you know there was kind of, i mean if it happened and if it's true that's a kind of a boss move right a lot of us uh, you know have have read and heard about the lore of mossad and cia and all of this stuff and i think it it uh, it is also a confidence of a nation right that it can defend its sovereignty both inside uh, its territory and and outside so uh, it's it's been a fascinating uh, few days uh, i should say moving on uh, to some very positive news over the past week the government of india held a special parliamentary session which began on monday and lasted till friday during the session the government passed the historic nari shakti vandan adhiniyam bill this bill provides 33% reservation for women in the parliament as well as other law making bodies the bill was passed with a unanimous vote with 454 members voting in favor and only two voting against uh, those opposed were mps from aimim nirav again this is something that uh, has you know been uh, introduced maybe four or five times uh, earlier uh, for starting in 96 i think during the devagoda government uh, right but hasn't really found purchase i think once it was passed in the rajya sabha but not in the lok sabha but uh, this is fantastic uh, what do you think uh, this will do for uh, women in politics so there are some pitfalls as well so what this does is uh, a lot of political dynasties a lot of politicians will put up their wives daughters uh, daughters in law and they all take the center stage so what this does is it does a little more maybe for nepotism but i think once you have a critical mass and you have like enough uh, women representation i think all the law laws which are formed they'll start looking at things from like everyone's perspective and uh, they will start looking at things which kind of there are a lot of hardships which uh, women do face in indian society in particular and they will be a little bit more aware try and do 
a bit better uh, for this. So I think that is uh, something which will be good. I actually feel that I would have preferred it organically to go like New Zealand has about 50%, right? Uh, women legislators. So I think that would have been great. This uh, reservation, there are multiple ways, but this is going to like push it and kickstart it, right? Now the other thing is that this is not going to happen till we have a census and we have delimitation of the constituency. So probably it's 2026 or something of that sort since when the state elections might have it. And uh, there's a big controversy again of delimitation and the changes in population of states. Some states have had huge population increase due to fertility. Some like cities like Bangalore have had huge increase in population due to immigration. And one is a positive. It's a very difficult conversation. So that is one thing. Then lastly, one of the potential pitfalls I can see is that every constituency by rotation will have female candidate, uh, reserved for a female candidate. So there is an MP who's been an MP from one particular constituency for two terms will probably will have to vacate that seat and maybe either fight from an adjacent seat or so then there is a little bit difficulty in like people thinking long term people owning a constituency and uh, trying and developing it or they try and put a rubber stamp which could be their spouse or daughter or daughter-in-law or sister and uh, that would kind of defeat the purpose what you would want is like a genuine uh, it gets more women interested in politics gets more in women interested in governance and if they can make all these uh, changes in the society and i think the impacts will be felt over a longer period of time and uh, initially as well i think there's a bollywood movie abhishek bachchan dasvi where he goes to prison and appoints his wife as the cm but once she becomes the cm she starts thinking for herself and starts doing things as per her wishes that apart so I think that is, see, that's a good thing. And also like more women look at uh, politics, policy making as a career choice. Hopefully more women also study law, maybe study political science, right? So all of this can be, have like a massive, massive spillover effect. Uh, so that is a good thing. In a very bad taste uh, on, I think on local body elections, there is uh, women's reservation is already there in a lot of places. I want to give an example. Uh, I, it is from Telangana state where I think in a Zilla Parishad election or a municipal election, both candidates were women, both were wearing burqas and the posters, there was a photo of their husband with a woman standing next to each other in a burqa. So I think that unfortunately defeats the purpose. Uh, what we want is not like a woman has an identity of her own. She is not just somebody's daughter, wife, sister, daughter-in-law, but she is the person on her own. So I think this maybe initially first few election cycles, we will see a lot of these things. We'll have a few Rabri Devis and a few people like this who will be in the uh, parliament and in the Vidhan Sabhas all over the country, but there will be social change on the ground and this will be a gradual process. And once that happens, I think. Uh, stuff where there are a lot of good initiatives that this government has taken, the Nalse Jal scheme, or uh, which helps like because women usually have to go pick up water somewhere and then bring it back, or like cooking gas instead of like uh, burning coal or uh, wood inside the house. Those few schemes, if we had like this kind of representation earlier, might have had come a generation ago or at least like 20 30 years ago. So maybe this kind of sees a little more uh, development 
along like the lines uh, where it is because a lot of women were ignored and those problems like there's a saying in marathi mulgi shikli pragati jali that is a woman learns uh, you see progress because once a woman is educated uh, the next generation of kids and all of that see so the society benefits so i think uh, that is definitely there's a huge positive spin off it is just maybe the short run uh, we will see uh, some of those kind of candidates who are there not because they are interested but because they are somebody's token representative and that probably is a negative thing on its own so yeah but all in all hats off to the government and uh, hopefully i think it's been passed with a massive majority so uh, this is also like a good thing where the government can get things done and move ahead when it has a complete majority so absolutely yeah no uh, fantastic news uh, i i kind of agree with you i think this is an artificial push in the interim period uh, right i think something like a more organic thing where w- true women's empowerment results in more development more progress uh, right and they actually start caring and taking taking up uh, positions of power more organically would have been uh, fantastic and, and i don't think uh, why you know any man cannot represent a woman either right i mean women's issues so i think you have to look at it from an issue perspective uh, if you look at prime minister modi itself i think he has been the most women friendly prime minister we've ever had uh, right i mean if you look at swachh bharat you mentioned the lpg ga- gas cylinder you know nal pe jal uh, jal jeevan mission etc and uh, you know it's also why he enjoys such an amazing uh, uh support of women right in elections uh, in even in places where uh, you know traditionally where they may be slightly bjp might be slightly backward um right so so this is fantastic a uh, couple of nuances here i think this this is a horizontal reservation so which means that let's say even within e- ews economically weaker sections or obc they will have to budget that 33% of those seats uh, for women um right so right now women's representation in india stands on average at 12% um this is against about 23% globally apparently so uh, this will come into effect uh, likely in the 2029 lok sabha elections uh, and not for 20 2024 uh, and maybe you know state elections before that right so uh, but overall i think this is a huge net positive i'm glad that you know after bring after bringing this to uh, the parliament for four times uh, it finally has been passed uh, with an overwhelming majority so let let us know what you think about this the pros and the cons i mean as with any major change there are pros and cons uh, so do let us know what you think about this in the comments well uh, speaking of bills there is another bill this time to end student elected bodies last week the state government of gujarat passed the gujarat public universities bill 2023 this bill calls to end all elected bodies on college campuses and student unions across all the public universities in the state rishikesh patel minister of higher and technical education said it to quote laid the foundation for a strong education system for the next 100 years nirav i think student elected bodies are uh, you know uh, are a net negative in my opinion right i think uh, uh, students should focus on academics or developing talents and skills that can help them be productive members of society first before they earn the right to sort of uh, wield any sort of power uh, but there is also this alternate thought that you know students have to invest themselves in uh, public affairs in politics uh, and so on and so forth they so that they understand enough about uh, their country the world uh, and uh, they can sort of con- contribute uh, and influence uh, things around them more tangibly um, what side of the debate do you stand on 
so i am on this i kind of totally agree with you that uh, the way current student elections and all those kind of things happen it is a massive net negative uh, what happens is that each political party has its own youth wing they used to actually get ground level leaders up and in an ideal scenario that would have worked in a nice manner but what happens is there's a lot of gundagardi and like you get a lot of goons all these student elected bodies are basically places where all these kind of like you'd call maybe like anti social elements kind of coalesce around and uh, like anything else like sadly like a lot of other indian elections as well you have basically what gets you ahead or elected is uh, money power and muscle power and uh, i think all of these things could just be like left it alone and you move on and just go for the main elections if you want join a youth wing of a party and work for the party and do things you want in the like outside the university uh, like if students want to be politically aware want to join a political party so be it once you're 18 you're free to join and work for whichever party you choose to but outside the university let the university be free out of free of politics and let university focus on education academics and like uh, whatever else like it is like it is a time you want to build friends build networks have a good time and learn ahead learn to become an adult it's a transition period and focus on those kind of things uh, rather than uh, student elections i think mumbai where i grew up there were like in the 90s i remember there was some uh, student elections and violence and all of that and then, uh, since then they banned it either 80s or 90s when i was in school and uh, i didn't miss anything i'm i was like couldn't be bothered less and that's a great thing that uh, you remove this hopefully uh, more states do understand that uh, where this is going i think once you become an adult be an active citizen vote in all elections join a party if you want to you want to be a social worker or you do something which is positive rather than grab power and grab all these kind of things uh, yeah i think that gets a little bit out of hand and uh, i think there are better ways to uh, find uh, young political leaders and uh, yeah uh, on the whole the way it is conducted right now it's definitely like a very violent thing so i would just prefer that it is banned altogether yeah i think one only needs to look at the west and this whole woke movement in universities uh, to understand you know the sort of depths that this can fall to uh, right i mean that sort of entitlement without really understanding the ways of the world uh, right and uh, protests and and so on i mean we saw some of this with this whole ashoka university fracas that happened recently as well uh, right i i feel like it's a net negative as well i i think investing in service is a different thing because i genuinely feel that colleges maybe should uh, afford a semester where students just go to the hinterlands uh, tier 2 tier 3 cities villages etc uh, and see real impact of whatever they've learned right i mean whether it is psychology or engineering really uh, try to apply things uh, as much as possible and and have a service orientation that is quite different uh, i think if you look at uh, pracharaks right rss pracharaks for example right i mean a lot of these folks are uh, amazing political uh, folks right now because they've invested in service because they've invested in organization so on and so forth and of course a lot of baudhik as well a lot of studying and or studying of issues um, as well before really you know uh, taking on positions of uh, power so so i think that is the way to do it yeah so so i think this is a good step overall well uh, finally some positive news on the economy front 
JP Morgan recently announced it will include Indian government bonds in its widely tracked emerging market debt index. Uh, the inclusion of Indian bonds will start on 28 June 2024 and extend over 10 months with 1% increment on its index weighting. Uh, India is expected to reach the maximum weighting of 10%. Experts hailed this decision of the inclusion of Indian bonds into the government bond index emerging markets or the GBIEM uh, and said bond investors will now have more options for investments. Nirav, uh, you know, anytime a stock is in included in an index, I mean, you know, obviously the uh, people invest in the stock uh, directly as well. Uh, so, so that's a net positive for the stock. Do you think something similar will happen to India in terms of foreign inflows and so on? Yes, yes. So I think there are some ETFs which kind of like just passively track the index that is estimated to be about $200 billion. So $20 billion will be allocated to India next year going ahead. And then there will be others who might uh, get in as well. But this is a thing which is, I would say, yes, it's a positive. What it does is, see, most of Indian government debt is actually hold, held by banks. That when you put a deposit in a bank, the bank lends out some money, but other money it holds as a liquidity ratio and holds government debt. Then you have like the pension funds like NPS, you have insurance companies, right? You have like very wealthy individuals or like NBFCs. And then now you also have this uh, foreigners who might hold it. And what happens is India does, it is a lot more regulated market. Uh, so there are a lot of regulations to go with it. The compliance burden is a bit higher. But what this does, it is another source of demand for one product. Yes, maybe the bonds rally a bit. But see, this is government that doesn't move as much as like stocks. So uh, that's a separate thing altogether. And what this does is it makes India's capital account more convertible and there'll be more inflows and outflows uh, from India. Can you, so, can you briefly explain capital account convertibility for yeah, sure. those of us who may not know it? Sure, sure. So capital account convertibility is the ability to move capital freely uh, in and out through the country's borders. India is not a fully capital convertible country. Like you have the US, Japan, EU, etc. is. In India, for example, there is an LRS scheme where citizens can only take out $250,000 outside. Foreigners as well, they can only take the money out, which is the amount invested and retained earnings. They can't really borrow money locally and take money out and then invest overseas or whatever. So that is there. And India is still a developing country. As much as we would like to say, it is still a lower middle income country. So this is probably appropriate. Uh, there is a famous, uh, I think Nobel Prize winning economist says that there is a trilemma. You cannot have an open capital account. You cannot have independent policy and a stable currency. You have to only choose two out of three. So I think countries like Japan, EU, etc. They say, okay, I can, I'm okay with my currency being volatile. That's fine. In a developing country like India, if your currency weakens a lot, your suddenly inflation you import a lot because through oil prices or whatever we import. Or if your currency strengthens a lot, then you all your exports like even IT services, etc. become uncompetitive. So you want that and you want your policy to be independent, not run that, oh, if like the US Federal Reserve is hiking rates or cutting rates, that affects your domestic. So now what will happen is this is a step. Slowly we are moving that as we keep growing up, as we keep developing, uh, this is one small step taken in like slowly opening India's capital account. And what this does is uh, there is a positive, obviously, that there is new source of government debt demand. So maybe uh, banks don't have to buy up all of this so banks can lend more domestically. So there is more money coming in. So that's a positive. Uh, 
the negative is what a lot of critics say is you will see the currency interest rates could potentially get more volatile depending on external conditions that rbi hikes or cut rates is because what is happening in the rest of the world not what is required for the domestic economy but as india gets intertwined india signing ftas india wants to we don't want to be a closed economy so this also is a positive i think at the margin it is a positive i personally feel that it might we might have been ready even like 5 10 years ago but that's my personal opinion slowly and india has to work towards kind of opening it up and now given whatever india has done jp morgan feels that this is a, a reasonably uh, liquid market uh, so india gives enough yield and is stable so and provides diversification for foreign investors so it's a positive at the margin it is not a big game changer and unlike when late 90s early 2000s when the foreign portfolio investors allowed to in, uh, invest in indian stocks and suddenly the stock market capitalization went up a lot etc this is not going to be of that sort this is mostly institutional professional investors uh, this is not your gamestop saga or anything uh, things don't move very fast uh, we talk about yields and changes in yields and basis points so it, it is a small thing but it is a positive development and it kind of also helps in development of the indian debt market uh, that's all what it is uh, i am i am happy that it has happened maybe a little too late but yeah absolutely uh, one uh, bharat vartha guest and uh, uh, pm's economic advisory council member member of the niti aayog uh, sanjeev sanyal had been pushing for it right since 2014 and then 2019 so this has finally come to the uh, uh, seen light of day so yeah uh, that's a big positive really shout out to sanjeev uh, i do know that he's been involved like behind the scenes in laying all the groundwork etc etc so he's one of the many many people involved right so absolutely i think yeah it's a good uh, thing for india and the citizens all of them all right and uh, in more positive news uh, iphones made in india went live uh, so last week we had iphone 15 uh, the release has uh, you know been tremendous i think uh, huge positive response although i don't know what new updates uh, are significant but uh, so we've talked about this uh, earlier uh, about how india is slowly but surely gaining uh, a larger percentage in manufacturing of these uh, iphones uh, so yeah uh, nirav this is also a significant milestone Oh yeah, absolutely. So seven percent of uh, iPhone 15 uh, is assembled in India. Uh, I would not call them completely manufactured in India. A lot of components come from Korea, Taiwan, China, etc. But I am really happy. So one is you you building it and launched at the same time. In the previous cycle, the older models were being uh, assembled in India. So now the launch. I think see for Apple, uh, for Taiwan, uh, so Foxconn, which is a Taiwanese company, is assembling it, and. everyone else i think there's a, a conscious effort to have a china plus one strategy and uh, they want to build uh, resilience they want to build redundancy so that is great and for india it's great because employs a lot of people one right now we are assembling components slowly we will be producing a few components uh, we this leads to skilling of a lot of people and a worker's income gives a better lifestyle and when the worker spends it not only to that that family uh, it kind of like a plant coming up somewhere actually creates a whole ecosystem of all services restaurants other facilities so absolutely and now india is getting more and more critical uh, within global supply chains and uh, 
we wanted to do all of these things uh, in make in India. So maybe uh, sometimes you need the external environment also to fall right into place uh, with uh, more tensions between US and China and also realizing post COVID, you cannot be too reliant on a monopoly. So uh, what if something goes wrong? What if there's a border closed? What if tariffs rise, etc. So and India is making the most of it. So great. Uh, this is fantastic. Uh, hopefully we get to like the stated number of 25% soon. And hopefully more and more components start being built in India as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, on that note, we come to the end of this Bharatvarta Weekly. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our content. If you did, don't forget to rate and review us. Uh, like, subscribe, share, all of the good stuff. Uh, promote this content to more people, your friends, your family, whoever. And uh, next week, we have an interesting uh, podcast with Rishabh Watts, who is a faculty of political science at the School of Economics, uh, NMIMS uh, University based in Mumbai. Uh, he's also studying Indian foreign policy, geopolitics of Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, interesting person to follow on Twitter. Uh, we'll talk about the whole India-Canada diplomatic fracas happening right now. Let us know if there are guests that we should host and topics we should cover. Uh, do let us know in the comments uh, and we will get to it. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, from Neeram and myself, do stay safe, take care and Jai Hind.